0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I'm delighted to be here in this place this morning, in part because I think that as we celebrate the work of our youth mission and ministry, and the, the students, the voices that we hear today, part of what we recognize is that we are thanking you. Because when we baptize our children here, you take vows. Do you remember that? You promise that you will help raise these children up in the way of the Lord. And it's fun to see just how exciting their lives become as you do. So this is a a great way to celebrate not just our students, but those who lead them. And as uh, a teacher of mine once said, um, said, you know, when you come to Scripture, when you study Scripture, the best it's best really compared to reading maybe something that somebody wrote on a frosted window. It's not hard to imagine with the weather that we've had lately. So said, from a distance you see the words, but as you get closer, you see through the words, into the home, into to the hand of the one that wrote those words. Well, God invites us this morning to lose ourselves into the scripture in order to be found, to get closer, to see through it, and see the God who loves us, and we'll open our eyes. So as we look at the scripture this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something maybe a little different. I want you to read with your mind's eye. I'll read the passage out loud, but I invite you to listen to it, and imagine that you're a director. What would the movie look like? How would you see it? What do you see, and what do you notice? <clears throat> the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 8. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Now, I was always taught to approach Scripture honestly, to ask questions that maybe the text raises but doesn't necessarily answer because it helps us to see. So here's what I came up with as I prepared this morning. It might give you a little window into how I think, which could be a very scary thing. First, why would Mark put such a risky story in his gospel? Jesus is so powerful, right? If he's so powerful, how come he can't heal this guy the first time? Two, why spit? (laughs) Three, why include the next story? If you're writing a case for Christianity, do you really want to include the rock on which the church is built getting top billing as Satan? Four, what does deconstruction of my life have to do with living? Now these are tough questions and I bet you have some of your own. So let's move closer to the words and look at what these two stories might be saying to us about ourselves, about each other, and the God who loves us. The flow of the life of faith is always a movement from blindness to sight. In fact, sight is the central metaphor of faith in Mark's gospel. So for all intents and purposes, these two stories are parallel stories of how Jesus works with those who can't see. The first because of physical limitations that needed to be overcome, And the second, because of spiritual limitations that need to be overcome. And as we look at our Peter, our bold, sometimes slow everyman of those who follow Jesus, we're also invited to see ourselves more clearly, too. So let's start with um, blind man number one. The story of the blind man in Mark is unique in that it's the only story where Jesus' healing efforts don't work the first time they don't do the trick they're not quite enough did jesus make a rookie healer mistake or is there something more here after one attempt the man sees but things are fuzzy they're blurry they're upside down one more touch and he can see clearly that seems easy enough if you're god one blind man down one to go so now let's turn our attention to peter Or Rocky, as Jesus has nicknamed him. By the time we get to this place in the story, he's been following Jesus for well over a year. And in the many months that he's been following, he's been seeing some amazing things. He's been touched through Jesus' teaching and his preaching, through his friendship and the community of this crazy band of people called the Disciples. Disciples. He's also experienced awakening and growth as he's watched Jesus heal others and as he and the disciples have been invited to become healers. Now, at this point, Jesus asked Peter essentially the same question he asked participant number one. What do you see? What can you see? And Jesus says, You're the Messiah. And we want to go, Score! Go, Peter! Now, a few things to keep in mind. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the term Messiah has evolved. It had started out as really one who would deliver Israel from oppression, and it's over time become more about a royal figure who would restore the political fortunes of Israel to a golden age, essentially ousting Rome and establishing Israel as the newest political power in town. To be fair... Messiah is a super genuinely loaded term. And the only way I can think to compare it would be if I said, next president, Republican, Democrat, discuss. Even among those who value decency and order, I'm sure there'd be a little bit of conversation, shall we say. Well, no wonder Jesus asked Peter to keep that information down, because if if extremists get a hold of it, they'll have an agenda for Jesus in no time. could turn into a, a brawl in the streets. Now imagine with me if the story just stopped here. It'd be a great moment for Peter. I mean, he sees clearly. Uh, kind of. I mean, it looks like he sees clearly. That is, until Jesus explains to him that as Messiah he'll suffer and be handed over and die. Not a great presiding political warrior, but a suffering servant. I'm the Messiah of downward mobility, Peter. Can you see Peter now? Oh, no, 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 Jesus. Mm -mm, Not my Messiah. Poor Rocky. Maybe he doesn't see so clearly after all. In fact, like the guy in our first story, maybe your vision's just a little bit distorted. See, Peter and the disciples want a Messiah who will take charge, who give them security and the power they long for, who'll deliver them from their vulnerabilities and lead them to seats of power where they can finally call the shots. That's why James and John ask to be seated on his right and left when he comes into his kingdom. And that's why Jesus tries so hard to impress upon them that greatness isn't about power, but serving others. And then again, it's no wonder that Jesus looks at the rest of the disciples when he rebukes Peter. As long as they hold on to that might-makes-right vision of rescue, they'll miss the point. Because God knows our need for deliverance runs much deeper than politics. This power avenue is a shortcut. It's a temptation. And frankly, Jesus has heard that before. So he rebukes the true author. And as he does, we're given a sober reminder that if Peter can get the right answer and miss the point, maybe we can too. Now, I want us to pause here and focus our attention on something that might be otherwise easy to overlook or dismiss. And I think it's really a pivotal point in the story of Mark's gospel. We have a great gift here, a window of insight into how it is to be a follower of Jesus. These two stories demonstrate What's really a cycle of discipleship? It's how we learn. It looks like this. Revelation, an experience of Jesus that opens our eyes, followed by misunderstanding, seeing but kind of fuzzy, followed by, oh, a little time in Jesus school where Jesus touches us, helps us to see better, maybe rebukes us a little bit. And then that's followed by seeing Jesus at work in our midst, maybe through Scripture or through a friend. Jesus' school has great, great avenues, by the way. And then on it goes, and then we see Jesus more clearly, and the cycle repeats itself. It's kind of really a lifelong process, cradle to grave. I hope you hear the good news in that. Do you hear the hope in that? Peter didn't become a rock in a day. You know, I love that in the Gospels, Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Rocky. But do you know that Jesus never once calls Simon Peter, Peter? Not once. It's as if he's saying, oh, honey, you'll be Rocky someday, but you ain't there yet. Bless your little heart. Well, there's hope in that story because I have a feeling there's a lot of Rockies in the room. I hope that today you'll ask someone... Maybe it's upstairs in Larson, maybe around the dinner table. Um, How their view, understanding of God has changed maybe in the last 5, 10, 20, 30, or just one year. Uh, Each of us is is a a story moving from blindness to sight. And I'd encourage you to tell those stories. Um, They're stories of hope and witness to God's work in our midst. Well, let's go back for a little bit to our story because I want us to understand a little bit more about this cycle of discipleship that I had mentioned earlier. Revelation, misunderstanding, Jesus' school, and more revelation. Now, there's great news in it. You are a work in progress, and you always will be. I I find that quite helpful. (laughs) I ain't there yet. Well, sometimes this learning looks like the discovery that we have when we think that we know lyrics to a song that we've sung for years and we actually find out later that we've had them all wrong. My favorite recent example of this is a VW commercial where everyone sings the lyrics to Rocket Man. It's like 23 seconds of wrong lyrics with three seconds of the right thing. Because VW says, if you had the right stereo, you would never have made this mistake. Yeah. Rocket Man filling up the room with bad cologne. Who came up with that? Well, admit it, you've done it. We've all done it. Sometimes we need a better stereo, but sometimes we just need to see the lyrics in front of us. And I think it's the same with God's song of salvation. We hear it, but sometimes the lyrics are a little fuzzy, so we don't quite get them right. And we sing what we think we hear, and we correct everyone around us accordingly. Hey, you guys, you have it wrong. Which I think is exactly why God sent us Jesus, the word in the flesh, the lyrics fleshed out. So that we would know exactly what it is that God's trying to sing to us. Now, as we look at our first century disciple friends, it's easy to be very critical of them. And we think, silly Peter, silly disciples, you got it wrong. Jesus came to deliver you from sin and death, not Roman oppression. I can't believe you had such a distorted expectation of Jesus. If you know, if hindsight's 2020, we have x-ray vision, don't we? So here's the question. Do we also sing tunes of hope in the wrong kind of deliverer? How many in the church, how many of us have a distorted view where Jesus is really just a well-intended superpower, compliant to do our wishes for our purposes? Because I have. Maybe a little combo of the father time image and a little bit of Aladdin's genie. And maybe it wasn't really all that long ago. Well, here's what it looked like in my life. I was in ministry at the time. That's what's so pathetic about it. But, you know, we're just coming clean. I was in Massachusetts working with university students there. And I think as I look back on it now, I believed really that Jesus needed me to serve him, to serve others. Caring for them, meeting their needs, spiritually, through acts of service. Honestly, it was exhausting. There are a lot of needs on a university campus. And if I'm really honest, I think somewhere in there I believe that if I sought God's best, God would give me his best right back. Namely, in the form of things that I long for. Take delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So I chose to live in a place that was kind of lonely, took a big risk because I wanted to serve students by helping them learn about faith. And I also committed to be part of a new church plant, and I gave hours of time each week to help plan the worship service and lead musically. In short, I really did just choose the hardest places to be because I thought, if I give big, God will give me big right back. But as the years ticked by, and I wasn't seeing that huge university fellowship that I had labored so much to build... And I didn't even see the growing church that I believed we should have had by then. I was kind of disappointed. Okay, I was really mad. I feel like, come on, God, you've let me down here. As if I have held up my end of the bargain. Where are you? Show me the money. And by the end of that year, I was burned out, resentful, bitter, bitter. And my supervisor kindly said, why don't you take a little leave of absence and go figure that out? (laughs) So I did. I drove from Massachusetts to Southern California and landed myself at Fuller Seminary in the wise care of Ray Anderson, another kind mentor who now sees Jesus face to face. And Ray's words to me in that moment felt like spit on my face as he said, burnout is just bad theology. In action. (laughs) And I stared at him and I thought, shut up, little old man. What do you know? And Ray went on to teach me, reminding me that God doesn't need me. And that need is a horrible master. That God asks us to serve him, not need because God won't give us more to do than is good for us. Ray also taught me that we're called into ministry and service as followers of Jesus because that's the place where God heals us from our self-reliance, our self-importance, from thinking that the God who created the universe with a Word somehow needs my help to get things going and get them done. Oh, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you more of his own self. God's not a cosmic vending machine. I returned to my work there for two more years, a kinder, wiser, gentler, more patient human being than I was when I left. But more importantly, a follower of Jesus, who had a clearer picture of who it was that I was following. Not a God that needed to be impressed, but a God who loved me and gave me ministry as a gift for my healing. Now, that's one distorted vision of God, and I bet I'm not the only one who's had that particular vending machine fuzzy image. But sadly, that's only one lesser Messiah that I've believed in, that, can be- that would deliver me in God's name. So I'm going to give you some lyrics here and see if I can just get anyone else in the hot seat. Do you recognize this? My hope is built on nothing less than if I can just get into the right school if I just had better grades, if I could just graduate, get into grad school. My hope is built on a job, a better job, a better salary, a better boss. If I just had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or a spouse or a different boyfriend, a different girlfriend, a different fiancé, or someone else's spouse. Maybe deliverance comes if we just had kids, if our kids could just be successful, or maybe, maybe if we'd never had kids at all. If we just had a better diagnosis, access to better doctors, more time. You know, as we discuss conversations around Sundays at UPC, let me tell you what I hear around here. Our hope at UPC seems to be built on whether if we have hymns, more hymns, a few more guitar songs, maybe if we had a more conservative denomination, less organ, a more conservative theology, contemporary service in the morning, insert your want here, a different preacher, a shorter sermon. And we say this as if worship is all about us. A seminary professor kindly reminded me that the only one who gets to walk away from a worship service and say, man, that really didn't do anything for me, is God. (laughs) But I digress. (laughs) Name an American who is not tempted to buy into deliverance by these lesser messiahs. If I were prettier, younger, smarter, funnier, more muscular, thinner, had more hair, less hair, wasn't going gray, had a nicer car, a better sex life, a better retirement account, a different insurance company. If my political party was an office, if I had stronger medication, the latest iPhone, a better wireless plan, or a better stereo system, whatever. Okay, if I haven't... If I haven't touched on anything for you, you're just lying. (laughs) My hope is found in nothing less than if God just did what I need my God to do for me. Isn't that kind of the way we hear that song sometimes? When we think like this, and we're all tempted to, it just wreaks havoc on our lives. Destroys our marriages. Families, friendships, churches, communities, even whole societies. These feeble attempts to save our own lives rob us of life, even as my burnout did for me. It's bad theology in action, with us at the center calling shots in God's name. And when things don't work out according to our standards, we get angry and blame God for everything. Now the good news in this is that for many of us, this leads to a crisis of faith. That's a place where we acknowledge that we're blind in our hearts and our souls and we desperately need a savior to touch us. So we go to Jesus school, needing a touch, needing to see. Often we feel like we failed, but the incredible gift that God gives us is that that's the path to life. And the more we try to save ourselves, the more we'll destroy ourselves. And the more we let God work through scripture and prayer, faithful friends who heal and uh, speak healing words and help us see clearly, the more we really live. Now, you'd like to think, I'm sure, from the pastor up front, that that one lesson would really have left me good to go on the path of discipleship. But alas, that is not true. A few years back, I found myself watching as another set of hopes and dreams seemed to come crashing down around me in slow motion. This happened as just two months away from what was to be my wedding, everything fell apart. Now, I'd grown, and I'd learned not to see things as so much as a reward, per se, but there was a little tevia in me that said, would it spoil some vast eternal plan? Sloppy though it may have been, it was a sign of growth, so I'm going I'm to hold it, cling to it. Well, this time around, I wasn't so much mad as just really, really sad. Internal clock ticking loudly, I realized that with this path, my hope for marriage or having a family of my own was dying a loud and agonizing death. Let's just say that I know very few little girls who dream of lives that end up where I was going. Somewhere inside me, I wondered if somehow I had just been disqualified from these things, these dreams that I'd had. And I wrestled with words of well-meaning friends who said things like, maybe you're not ready yet, because everyone who gets married is ready. (laughs) Maybe there's an area of unconfessed sin in your life, because everyone who stands at the altar is shiny bright new. Nah, wasn't buying it. So I did what every rational woman would do in my position. I found my most in-shape and introverted friend, and I talked her into a long hike with me, a very long hike, across a country, England. 200 miles, 13 days. I just wanted my body to hurt as much as my soul. I wanted hours on end to pour out my disappointment with God and to figure out what I really believed. So for this installment of Jesus School... I was given the shepherding text for reflection, mostly because we spent hours a day walking through sheep pastures. Now, to be fair, I don't think God has done us any favors in comparing us to sheep. They're really not all that bright, but they are good teachers. So as I climbed through the Lake District, I found myself reciting the words to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, only it really sounded more like, The Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) And mile after mile, I thought about sheep and shepherds. And what was David thinking? Do you know you can tell a lot about how well a sheep is cared for? By how well they look. When I came across sheep in bad condition, I never once thought, Stupid sheep, get a life. I thought, Who's the shepherd that left you so vulnerable and weak? Who's this horrible person? And then I remembered the psalmist's words. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. He restores my soul. My cup overflows. And I realized this story, this salvation story, it's not about me. It's not about what I can or can't do what I can accomplish, what I have been able to achieve or unable to achieve, what I have been qualified or disqualified from. The story, my story, is about God, about God's redemption. And pasture after pasture, I came to see that if my faith is what I say it is, God can't withhold good things from us. God can't be any less good to me on the day that I didn't get married or have children or fill in your disappointment here than he was on the day that he died for us. Do you hear that? I mean, really? I don't know what your latest Jesus School lesson entails, what your latest distorted Messiah musings may be, but here's what I know. God cannot withhold good things from us because it would negate God's very character to do anything less than that which is life-giving and good for us. God's name, God's very good and holy name are on the line. And that is as clear as the lyrics can get. Peter's rebuked because God loves him. The blind man gets touched repeatedly because God loves him. And he even uses spit because God loves him. God schools us because God loves us. I can honestly say that I came home from my adventure 10 pounds lighter, significantly more arthritic than when I started but also with a much clearer picture than I'd ever had at that point of the God who's called me to follow. And I'm going to hold on to it as long as I can, because I'm sure I'm going back to school sometime soon. God's hopes for us are never thwarted by our own lesser hopes for ourselves. That is good news. And may that good news that God has set us free to live, I mean, really live, fill you with hope today and always. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117